0: welcome to the community church podcast this is the third week of our series harsh truths this message comes from matthew chapter 18 verses 15 through 20. if you'd like to take notes there's a link for that in the show notes thanks for joining us and without further ado here's pastor mike now we are looking at at uh this harsh truths and some of these ideas where jesus speaks some really hard things And this morning we're gonna be looking at what he says about conflict, specifically within the church amongst other believers. We're gonna be looking at Matthew 18 verses 15 through 20, a a really important, but a very challenging passage. Uh, If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there with me and and I hope that you'll keep your Bible open throughout our time so you could follow along with us and continue to go back to this passage. Uh, If you don't have one, there's one in front of you, we'd invite you to use that, it's on page 823. But Let me begin by reading the passage we're going to look at this morning, Matthew 18 starting in 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault, between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. May God bless the reading of His word. Let me pray, Father. Thank you for the privilege that we do have to come together this morning, Father, to be able to dive into Your Word. Thank you for this rele- incredibly relevant, practical passage that's so important. Father, thank you that even in my own study, You continue to teach me, and uh, for the truths that are here that I can learn, and for the way that it challenges me. I pray now that You would speak, Father, that You would speak through me. Give me even the strength to be able to communicate Your truth and. Father, that your spirit would speak through your word. And Father, I pray for each person that's here, that you would give us the sensitivity to hear and to respond to what your Holy Spirit may say to each one of us. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. And we have titled this section of, our study of this section of the Gospel of Matthew, Harsh Truths, because what we're seeing is that in chapters 18 through 20, Jesus has some teaching on subjects that are difficult, that at times can be uncomfortable and even convicting. And what we're looking at this morning is a section that I think is incredibly important to us. It's important to us individually for our own spiritual health. It's incredibly important for for us as a church, for the spiritual health of us as a church. It's important, but it's also really difficult. Because he's dealing with the issue of dealing with conflict between followers of Christ, and that, and the need to seek godly um resolution to that conflict the fact is that the, what he's going to be see, we're seeing we seeing the bible teaches not only here but it, but elsewhere is that there will be conflict um and we need to seek uh conflict resolution amongst followers of christ now deep down i think there's part of us all that kind of expects that this shouldn't be a problem you know we expect that yeah, they're going to have some conflict with people outside of the church. But when we get into the church, you know, well, they're all Christians. You know, where they're going to do the right thing. And, and, um, and they're not going to offend me. They're not going to sin against me. We don't say that. But I think that deep down, we kind of expect it. And so therefore, when someone does offend us, when someone does sin against us in some way, I mean, we're shocked, and how could they do that? And don't they know, you know are they a part of the church? And, and, and boy, it could be destroyed, you know, damaging. We're just shocked with it. No, even as, just as introduction, let me ask a question. I'm gonna come back to this later, but let me just start an introduction. In your own relationship with other believers, did you ever do anything wrong? And do you ever do something that might offend someone else? Do you ever do something that might not only be sinful, but might be shameful? I think that we'd all answer yes. But I think that when we do it, we kind of see it as really not that bad. And not only that, but we have some kind of explanation or some kind of excuse. There's some contributing factor. And, and, and we expect the people around us to, to understand that and, and to show us grace. But too often the same understanding and grace that we expect others to show us, we don't show other people who offend us. Now, what we're gonna see is that Jesus is teaching, the fact is that there will be conflict between believers. That's part of the reality. Any of us who have been a part of a church for any length of period of time know that this is true. Um, you know, you know, we might in fact some of it. sometimes we're in a church and where there's conflict, somebody's offended us. Some of you maybe you left a church because of that and, and then we walk out and we say, Well, something's wrong with that church because of the conflict, because of the sin. And but the reality is, is this side of eternity, we're all going to be dealing with churches where churches made up of sinners. People who are forgiven by God's grace but people are still dealing with sin. And because of that, therefore, because it's filled with imperfect sinners, we're going to offend each other. And there's an old line that's saying that, you know, if you're looking for a perfect church, you'll never find it. And if you, and if you do, you shouldn't join it because you'll ruin it. And, uh, and there's some truth to that. And, and that's one of the ideas actually we're seeing Jesus teach here. In fact, if you look at a few verses before the passage we read a moment ago, there's, there's, a, there's a passage of verse in verse seven that out of context, it maybe didn't make a whole lot of sense, but I want you to see it in the context of what he's talking about here, about conflict amongst believers. In in, in Matthew 18, he says, "'Woe to the world for temptations to sin, "'for it is necessary that temptations come, "'but woe to the one by whom temptation comes.'" Now, in the context of what he's talking about here, what he's saying is that we live in a fallen world where sin happens, even in the church, we, the Church is filled with sinners who are again, forgiven, uh, but we're not made holy. We're in the process of being made more like Christ, but none of us who reach that this side of eternity. So therefore, we live in a fallen world where people sin. And we would like to expect the best of each other and expect the best of ourselves. But the fact is, again, we shouldn't expect too much, because again, we live in a, sinf- a sin sinful world. And what he's saying is, we're going to face temptations. We're going to offend each other. We're going to sin against each other. Um, that's the reality. In fact, then if we go to verse 15, when Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Basically, Jesus is assuming that there will be times that your brother, specifically not, not an unbeliever, but a brother or a sister, a num- member of the church, that they will sin against you. It, it's not questioning whether this will happen. It will happen sooner or later. Now, is it excusable? No. Is it, uh, you know, is it something that is saying, don't, nip it, don't make a big deal of it? And actually, no, we should make a big deal of it. But what Jesus is saying, it shouldn't shock us that this happens, even amongst the church, because, again, we all deal with sin. Or next week, we're going to see when Peter comes to Jesus and he asks him, you know, Lord, how often will I my brother sin against me and if I forgive him? as many as seven times. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. And again, where we see here is that, you know, you know Peter's saying, you know, how often shall I forgive? And that assumes that people will wrong us. And not just once, but multiple times, even amongst other believers. So we should expect, in a sense, that people are gonna offend us, that we're gonna be sinned against. And, and the important thing that we've got to realize is, what do we then do when it happens? And what we're going to see this week and next week, in this whole latter part of Matthew 18, Jesus is teaching us about what we're to do when someone offends us, when someone sins against us, when we have conflict. And one of the things we need to see right off the bat is, is again, there's a problem of sin, but what is the nature of that problem of sin? You know, before Jesus deals with the problem of how other people may have sinned against us and how we should, would seek to deal with the of, that offense, Jesus first starts by reminding us that we, we all struggle with sin as well. Now, here's why this is important to remember. Because it's really easy for us to see someone else's sin, especially when it's against us. But then we can become so focused on someone else's sin that we fail to notice our own. We're offended by what the other person did to us that we justify what we might be doing to someone else, how we may have contributed to the problem. Or we may be doing the exact same thing, but yet we don't see it in ourselves. Now again, let me go back a few verses in in Matthew 18 and see that Jesus has set this up. Now again, see it in the context of, of everything that he's teaching here is in this context of conflict resolution within the church. We saw already uh, in in verse seven, you know, Jesus said, woe to the uh, world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one whom the temptation comes. And so he's saying, again, we live in a fallen world where sin happens, even in the church, we're gonna sin against each other. But then he continues in verse eight, and if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the uh, hell of fire. Now, this is figurative language. He's not calling any of us to literally mutilate our body if we're struggling with temptation. That's not what he's calling us to do. What he's doing is he's using very strong, even harsh language to make a point. And he's saying, okay, before you look at someone else's sin, you need to take your own sins seriously. Before you're so bothered by how someone else has sinned and how they've have, you know, offended you, first of all, be ruthless in looking at your own sin and being ruthless in letting God expose it and dealing with it. Take it seriously. Now, once we've done that, we then say, okay, if we're starting to do that, then we should look at someone else's sin and we should look at what is the issues between us. And, and if there's unresolved anger, it's vital that us, you know, for us to, to, to deal with it to, because there's a danger of ignoring conflict. Um, in fact, I would say that there's a spiritual danger in, 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 uh, in not dealing with this. And let's, let me put it this way. Let me use an illustration. It's a true story. Back when I was about 10 years old, I was playing with my our family dog and, and um, you know, a ball rolled under the couch and I go to reach the, the ball and I pull it out and there was a nail that was sticking from the bottom of the couch and I just hear this tear and I come out. I've got this huge gash, this two-inch gash on my wrist. I can see bone. And um, you know it's obviously bleeding. It's, you know, it's just kind of really nasty. And for whatever reason, I don't know why, you know, what's a 10-year-old thinking, I, I felt stupid about getting cut. And I was kind of ashamed and I was somewhat fearful about what would be involved in getting stitches and that sound painful. So I figured I would just avoid the pain. And so I decided to use the vast medical knowledge that I had as a 10 year old to treat it myself. And so I go upstairs and I rinse it out with water and, and it's bleeding all over the place. How do I stop it bleeding? So I put some gauze on it and try to slow down the bleeding. And i think oh i need some antiseptics so i get like some solar cane or something and spray it on there and and uh but there's no band-aid big enough for it so i like take gauze and i wrap it around you know several times and i've, so I've got this all gauzed up and, and and i figured you know if i can't see it then no dirt can get in and, and it's going to get better and i know you're sitting there thinking uh, what a medical genius you were at 10 years old. I mean, I, I, but that's part of what I was thinking. I was thinking this makes sense to me. And um, now when it was dinner time, my mom saw it and she asked what, I said, oh, it was a cut. And she must've figured that I was a, a kid overreacting. She didn't make a big, she didn't ask to see it. The next day she still sees it wrapped up. She says, well, show me. And she, see, you know, I show her and she just like passes out almost. And with an hour, I'm in the emergency room. And what I found is that because I didn't treat it right away, it became a big issue. Uh, If I had dealt with it right away, you know, we'd cleaned it out, gotten the, you know, tetanus shot, gotten everything, stitched it up. But because it had been open for a day, you know, they couldn't put stitches anymore. And it actually was a really long process of of dealing with it. And I've still got a huge scar even now. And, and, um, you know, I, I thought though, that by hiding my cut, I could make it better. I didn't realize is that the longer that I hit it, uh, the more it would become infected and the more that it would risk not only not getting healed but actually causing an infection that would impact other parts of my body. And the story illustrates a really basic medical truth. A physical wound never gets better by ignoring it or covering it up. It needs to be exposed, it needs to be treated, and ignoring it only leads to infection that can spread your whole body. Now, if we understand that when it comes to physical wounds, why is it that we struggle so much to understand and apply and believe when it comes to relational or spiritual wounds? And the fact is in the same way, you know, we have a relational wound, we have anger at somebody and we just think that we're gonna cover it up and maybe we're kind of ashamed and we're gonna ignore it and think it's gonna get better. But the fact is it doesn't get better. It actually gets infected and in time the infection spreads so that it impacts not only that one relationship but other relationships as well. It never gets better by hiding it. And in, in fact, look at what uh, Paul says about this in Ephesians chapter four, specifically about anger. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. And I wanna point out a few things there. First of all, it says it's not wrong to get angry. Be angry and do not sin. Never says, don't get angry. No, you will get angry. Why? Because we live in a fallen world where people will sin against us and it's natural to become angry and that's okay. God doesn't ever tell us, don't become angry. What he does say, be angry and do not sin. Never use your anger as an excuse for sin. Anger is never an excuse for wrong behavior. And not only that, but then we're told then don't let the sun go down on your anger. So you're gonna get angry. Don't use an excuse for sin, but then also make sure to resolve it quickly, to deal with it, to try to resolve it as best as you can, ideally before the sun goes down, before the day's done. Now, we may have some unresolved conflict and, and we might look at it and say, can I resolve it today? Maybe not, some of them, but most of them, if we're serious about it, we can try to take it on definitely this week. And it is serious. Look at how serious. Look at the warning. And He says, "If you don't do this, do not and give no opportunity to the devil, because if you don't do it, it's going to." What he's saying is that anger gives an opportunity. It's an infection. It's an infection that Satan then uses to kind of spread, so that it is an opportunity that he brings, you know, all kinds of temptation, all kinds of damage into all these relationships. Don't give an opportunity. Take this seriously. Okay, so we might be thinking, okay, well, can I see that I've got an issue with somebody, and you know, and but but I'm waiting for them to take the initiative. You know, if they come to me, I'll talk with them. Okay, well, let's look what the Bible says here about who takes the initiative to resolve this conflict. Whose responsibility is it to take the initiative in addressing conflict? Uh, when is it ours? When is it the other person's? Well, let's look at what Jesus says. Let's go back to Matthew 18, the passage we're looking at. Look what he says in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Now, okay, so it's when your brother sins, so if we feel like we are the wronged party, well, then we should take the initiative to approach the other person and try to deal with what we have feels like the sin or the wrong in some way. It's our responsibility to take the initiative. All right, let's go to Matthew 5. And in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching again on conflict. But look at what he says there. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Now here's how serious it again is before God. He's saying if you're at worship and you're about to make an offering to God, if you're in the middle of worship, you know, and you realize that there's a problem between you and a brother, Go, and before you continue to give that gift, go resolve the issue. Because your worship, you know, is going to be hindered by this unresolved conflict with another believer. It's that important. Deal with it that quickly. But specifically, who takes initiative? And if you remember that your brother has something against you, if you suddenly realize, okay, there's a conflict here and if somebody else has something against me, they feel that I have been the offending party, then I'm called to take the initiative. Now, now here's the question. On Matthew 18, it says, if your brother has wronged you, you should take the initiative. In Matthew 5, he's saying, if you've wronged your brother, you should take the initiative. Well, which one is it? And the answer is yes. I mean the answer is that we are always called. If we realize that there's a conflict between another us and another believer, it is always our responsibility before God. That I can't sit back and say, well, they need to do it. It's their job. They're the ones wronged me. Or no, God always wants us to seek to take the initiative. If there's anything between us and another believer, we should always try to confront the issue. We should always seek healing and restoration. Well then the question is, okay, well then practically, how do I do this? What's this look like? What's the process? Well, so let's look at this and see what happened. Now, there is a process. Most of us, well, not all of us, we've had conflict with other believers. We've had conflict with people and we've tried a lot of processes. We've tried a lot of wrong ways, right? You know, We know what, it, what doesn't work. And, and here's where we have Jesus laying out, this is the God-ordained process. And, and let's go back and try to do this the right way because if we do it the right way, God will honor that and it, and it works. So so first, I'm gonna say the first step. In fact, I'm not gonna say the first step. It's it's a prerequisite, the first step. In a sense, it's almost something that comes before the first step. And and here's why, because the point is, before we look at someone else's sin and how they may have offended us, what the Bible teaches is that we need to, first of all, look at our own life. We need to ask God to be ruthless and expose our own sin and dealing with it before God. We saw that already in what Jesus teaches in verses 8 and 9 when he talks about, you know, if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. His point is, again, we've got to be far more ruthless in seeing our own sin and dealing with our own sin than we should ever be in looking in somebody else's sin. In Luke 17, we have another record of Jesus teaching the same idea. It's, you know, the same teaching, but it's kind of abbreviated. And um, and, and some of this connection is a little more clear even in, in Luke 17. And he starts off in 17.1, he says, "'Temptations are sure to come, "'but woe to the one through whom they come.'" Same thing This we saw in Matthew 18. But then in, in verse, uh, verse three, look at what he says. "'Pay attention to yourselves. "'If your brother sins, rebuke him, "'and if he repents, forgive him, "'and he sins against you seven times.'" And the same thing we're gonna see in Matthew 18. But notice what he says here. This is the same thing that he's talking about, you know, your, your foot and your eye, cut it off. "'Pay attention to yourselves.'" It's very direct. Okay, before you look at your brother's sin against you, before you deal with that, pay attention to yourselves. Look into your own lives. You know, let, let um, have an honest evaluation before God of, of your own sin, of its impact. We have to look inward at our own heart. We have to be willing to let God point out our own sin before we start worrying about some sin in someone else's life know, even if someone else has offended you in some way, before we begin attacking them, we have to stop and first of all say, have I done anything to contribute to this problem? Have I done anything to uh, you know, add to the conflict? In fact, Jesus teaches the same idea in, in Matthew 7. And I love how he does it you know, beautifully and, and he, with great imagery in Matthew 7. Look what he says. You know, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye you hypocrite first take out the log of your own eye and then you will be able to see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye and he uses this imagery here of talking about you know this the log He literally could be like a two by four it could be a beam that held up a house and he's saying you know what happens is we go and we say hey you've got a problem you've got a splinter in your own eye and and just think of this image, you know, this guy has gotten this two by four sticking out of his eye and saying, here, let me fix a problem that you have in an eye. I mean, it's like, it's silly. And he's like, well, back up. You keep hitting your head with your two by four. No, no, the real problem is your splinter in the eye. And he's saying, no, we need to realize that before we look at someone else and the sin that bothers us, we need to, first of all, look at our own life. And there's things that we can be combined to We need to realize that if I'm going to confront someone else and I'm going to be merciful and I'm going to be gracious and God's uh, um, representative, in a sense, to them, we have to, first of all, look at our own life and see the hog sticking out of our own eye. And only then can God use us to maybe confront that other person. Uh, But why is it that we somehow can take upon ourselves the, the right to, you know, confront someone else about their spiritual condition when we're not failing to do with our own. See, an important spiritual principle is this, God will never hold me accountable to how someone else responds to his word. He only holds me accountable to that. And so the question is, am I listening to his word? Am I responding? Am I surrendering in all things? Let me give you an example of this. Something that I've seen, you know, and met many, you know, 30 plus years of pastoral ministry now. You know, I've had many times that I've met with with, uh, marriage, couples in marriage counseling. And uh, and I've yet to have a couple come in the office and say, well, tell me what's going on. Oh, we're really struggling. Well, tell me what's, well, the husband says, well, the problem is me. I just have all these things that I need to fix and I just can't fix it. And the wife says, no, it's me. It's I've got all these things that I've got to fix and I'm trying, but I just can't fix it. I've never had that happen. You know why? Because if somebody's really looking at their own issues, they're not coming for marriage counseling. They're probably doing pretty well. Now what happens it's that they'll come in and they'll say, well, our marriage is broke and, and we've come in here so you can tell my spouse how they're doing everything wrong. You know, I, w- I want you to fix them. Now, they won't say it that bluntly. Some will, but, you know, but that's basically the message. And, and every once in a while, somebody will put on an air of humility and say, well, I know I've got my issues, but I've dealt with my issues and, and now they've got to deal with their issues. But again, it's always the other person's problem. You know, they've got the splinter. I'm not willing to see the log. Let me even try to illustrate it maybe in a more humorous way. You know, we think of of, of a diet. All right. Um, You know, what happens is that if, you know, if you have you and your spouse and you've agreed to go on a diet, I, I come home and it's you know, nobody's home. And man, I'm hungry. So I grab a bag of cookies and, and, and that's not enough. So I get a big bowl of ice cream. Next thing you know, I'm eating the cookies, using the cookies as the spoon to eat the ice cream. And hey, there's some leftover Christmas chocolate there. I'm just going to dump that on top of it. And man, I'm just picking out, I'm a beached whale. And a you know, half hour later, my wife comes home and she sticks her hand in the, in the bowl of M&Ms and eats a couple of M&Ms. And I'm like, we said we're going to go on a diet. You know, you need to lose some, weight, some of that Christmas weight. What's wrong with you? And, and I'm, I'm like, okay, wait a second. You know, first eating the pantry out before you talk to someone else about the M&Ms. And we can relate to that. You know, what's really maddening about this is that sometimes we can confront the person and we have a hypocrisy that, seems, that presents it as an act of kindness. I'm just doing this for your benefit, for your, I'm concerned about your soul. And God's, God's, God's saying, no, first of all, make sure that you're dealing with your soul, your own. Be as critical of yourself as you are of other people. And and as much as you want them to be merciful for you, be merciful to them. Okay, so until we're willing to take our own sins seriously, we will not be effective in confronting others. But at least when we have tried then to take the plank out of our own eye, then what do we do? And again, the Jesus is really clear about this. There there are biblical steps of confrontation that he lays out for us here. Now let me read the whole passage, and then we're going to break it down step by step real quickly, okay? Verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to, uh, to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him uh, be to, to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And again, I say to you, if two, or th- uh, two of you agree on, on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now, let me point out some steps. The first step is that God calls us to pray in a spirit of humility. Now This isn't something that is explicit here, but I think it's clearly implied. Why? Because the goal is for God to work. The goal is for God to expose, for God to heal. And so we need to realize, okay, this isn't my wisdom. My, no, I'm coming and I'm saying, God, I'm, call, I'm asking for you to work And and part of that is we need to come with humility to say, God, is there a log in my own eyes? Is my motive even in this confrontation right? Now, let me tell you what God has taught me in my own life on this issue. Because there have been a lot of times, it's like I need to confront that person and and then I pray about it and I realize, no, I shouldn't. And and here's the basic rule that I've learned in my own life, right? I have found when I pray about it and I really wanna confront the person it's almost always about me, not about them. If I want to confront them, it's because I want to prove them wrong. I want to show them up. I want to prove that I'm right. And it's really a reflection more of my sin than it is of their sin. And so if I really want to confront them, I probably shouldn't. I should probably say, God, what is the log in my own eye? There have been other times that it's like, I know there's an issue and I really don't want to confront the person, but I pray about it. and I really feel God calling me to do it. In those cases, my motivation is probably right, and when I don't want to do it, I probably should. That, that is a rule that has proven to be true almost all the time in my own life. And i encourage you to think about that. So first of all, pray, spirit of humility. Once you've done that, you then go to the person privately, one-on-one, to confront them. Look at what Jesus says in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens you, to you, you have gained your brother. And he's clear on this, it's just between the two of you. You do not shame them in public. We live in a culture where it's like, you know, we have this idea that call out culture and I need to confront people in public. No, the Bible never says that. The Bible's very clear, it's very much the opposite. And that also means that we don't go to people beforehand and that we don't see need to say, boy, I'm really worried about this person's sin, pray for me, I'm gonna confront them, you know, pray that God would open up the door. No, everything is private, just between the two of you alone. Um, you know, unfortunately, too often we can justify biblical gossip and we can say, I'm worried about this person's sin, pray for them over this sin. And, and we're sharing things and we're t- calling it about prayer, but it's going against the principle that Jesus is teaching here. And, uh, and so he's clear. First, you go to him, tell him his fault between the two of you alone. Keep it private and make sure it's with the right motive. The context of this, again, if you remember the surrounding verses right before this, Jesus was teaching about the lost sheep and the good shepherd. And our motivation in the confrontation should be the same as that was the good shepherd and going to find the lost sheep. Was the the good shepherd trying to humiliate the lost sheep? Was he trying to expose him? Was he trying to reprove him? No, he was trying to bring him back and restore him. And that should always be our motive. Okay, when we've done that, what happens when I go one-on-one and it doesn't go well? Well, then he continues and he says, okay, then we should bring one or two spiritually mature advisors. Verse 16, if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, there should be one or two, no more than two, and they should be people that are spiritually mature, ideally people who have relationships with both you and the other party. It could be someone who's in church leadership, but at this point, it doesn't have to be. And and what you do is you go and you share the concern with these people privately. Now again, it's just those people. You don't get more people praying. You don't share with more people. You just get those few people and you share the concern, you share what's happened. And then after some time of prayer and discussion between them, you then go with these few other people and you do another confrontation. Now, when Jesus teaches that we should bring one or two others into the issue, I think he's also telling us that we do this with a spirit of humility, which means then when we go and confront the other person, we're at the same time inviting this third party, in a sense, to look out from the outside. And as they're hearing the whole confrontation, they might be confronting the other person or they might look at it and they say, you know what, you're contributing to this as well. That person might at this point in time saying, you know, there's a log that you're missing and you're part of this well. And we need to be open to them listening and pointing out where we may be in the wrong, where we may be contributing and uh, where we've got to be willing to see the log in our own eye. And so, if if that you know if, if we you know have been open to that, there's not a problem that we've done. We've gone with two or three you know one or two other people, and we've confronted them. That doesn't go well. Then what do we do? He says, okay, then we entrust the issue to the church leadership. That's what he says in verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Now, some people would te- teach this to mean that you know, and I know some churches that will do this to say, well, if, you know, if they don't do this, then we're going to make a public announcement, in a meeting that this person is wrong, and they're going to be disciplined and. I don't think that's what it's teaching. It does for a number of reasons. Not only what it's not being taught here, um, but even here, I, one of the things that's, that's clear is when he talks about in verse 18, you know, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. That's that's a restatement of what Jesus said earlier in Matthew 16, speaking about the apostles and the you know Peter and the apostles and church leadership and saying, "Come okay, and trusting you with leadership." So in this context. When he looks at it and says speak it and bring it to the church and then he talks about binding and he's saying okay you bring it to the church leadership and entrust it to them now what that means is that there's an aspect of the church elders that we have responsibility of church discipline and and i don't have time to get into all what that is and there is a process of that and that's really important and we have to take that seriously as elders um but what I want you to see is that in this case, when we have dealt with it, we've brought two or three other people, we then bring it to the elders and we entrust it to the elders to take care of it. At this point in time, it's between the other person and God and the elders. It's no longer your issue. And you let it go. You trust them. You don't share it with other people. You don't you know, get other people praying about it. There may be a process of church discipline, but you just entrust that it's going to be taken between the elders and the other person. It's no longer your issue. Instead, what we're called to do is once we've entrusted it to the elders, until we know it's resolved, we're then to relate to that other person as an unbeliever. And uh, again, I look at verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, some of us, especially, you know, if you look at the Amish community, they look at this and, and this is the idea of shunning that they'll do. You know, if you do this and you confront them, they don't do that. We shun them. We kind of exclude them. Um, that's not what is calling us to do. Why? Again, remember the context right before this: the good shepherd, the sheep that went out there. It, let me even add, just ask this really basic question. It says, you know, relate to them as a gentile and a tax collector, as an unbeliever. How did Jesus relate to unbelievers? Did he shun them? Did he say, "I want nothing to do with you"? No. He was gracious and he was kind. And so what we're called to do here is we're called to say, okay, I'm called to do my part. And my part is I've done as far as I can. I've entrusted it to the God, I've entrusted to the church leaders. And it talks about in Romans chapter 12, you know, it says, leave room for God's wrath. Leave it to God. God's gonna take care of it. And then it says in verse 20 of Romans 12, then if you've done that, if basically God's gonna take care of it, what's our role? Well, on the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And in doing so, you'll be heaping burning coals on his head. Basically treat him with kindness, treat him with grace, treat him with, you know, now there's again, there's church discipline and we're, I'm not gonna get into that here today, but as an individual, we treat them with kindness and grace, expecting them to act like an unbeliever, but then praying for God to bring them back. And that's the last thing that God calls us to do is to pray. Look at verses 19 and 20. I say to you, um, if two or three or two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I amongst them. And I I never saw this as related to this before. And then you see it and you're like, man, this is really beautiful. Think about this, all right? You go and you bring one or two other people, right? So what he says, are two or more gathered in my name, if two or three pray, who are the two or three he's talking about? you and the one or two other people you brought into that confrontation. So you bring it to the elders and then what you do is you pray. And you say, J- not a bunch of people, but you just the people that are involved in the process and you pray. And what is the promise here? If you agree on anything on earth and you ask about anything you ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I amongst you. And what does it say, we pray, why? Because prayer changes things. Prayer does miracles. And so we pray. And we then leave room for God. And we realize, okay, my job isn't to be the Holy Spirit in someone else's life and to change them. You know what I found out is the Holy Spirit's a much better Holy Spirit than I am. And so I've got to sit back and, and pray and let God do the changing, let God do the work, but pray with hope, pray with confidence. That's part of what we're talking about with this week of prayer. There may be some things where you're saying, okay, here are some relationship issues I need to pray about, but well, pray. Be involved and pray. Get a few people that have been involved and pray. Pray that God would do miracles because God does miracles. What does He say if we agree on anything on earth that we ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven? Not always in our time, not always in our way, but God answers prayer. God's a God of healing, God's a God of hope, God's a God of restoration. And in our relationships, whether it be you know, in our family, in our marriage, or whether it's in church or friendships or whatever it be, God heals. And in our lives, with issues of anger and things that were unresolved that are, that are these infections that continue to eat away at our health, God heals and God resolves. But, but we've got to do it God's way. See, again, we've all done it the wrong way and we know what it looks like when it doesn't work. And this is hard. This is convicting. This is not easy. But I tell you, as a believer, the more that we do it God's way, as a church, the more we do it God's way, the more we see, yes, we're still sinners, and we still step on each other's toes, and we still offend each other. And, but we also learn to show each other grace, and we learn to, to heal and restore. And we learn to have relationships that are close enough to persevere even in the midst of differences and difficulty. We have relationships that honor God because we're building the relationships. We're building the church. We're building community, God's way. And that is it for this week's message. If you have a question about the message, community church, or Jesus Christ, send us a text to 330-400-3242. You can learn more about our events and community groups online at ccpl.life/connect. There, you can also send in a prayer request. We would love to pray for you. Have a blessed Lord's Day, and we'll see you next week.